Hey there, and welcome to episode number three of Craftish. I am Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Pom Pom. Pom Pom is a quarterly magazine that presents knitting, crochet, and craft in the modern, beautiful, and meaningful way we've always known it should be. They also celebrate the joy of making without taking themselves too seriously, which I love. And you can find all of their amazing stuff over at pompommag.com, where you can see their spring issue and also their new books from Pom Pom Press. Today's guest is yarn whisperer Claire Parks, whose book Knitlandia, A Knitter Sees the World, is now a New York Times bestseller in the travel book category. I'm so thrilled for her. We have actually known each other, or at least known of each other, for, I want to say about 14 years, but really only hung out for the first time within weeks ago. I think that how we first sort of crossed each other's paths was we were in a book years ago by an author named Layla Narji. It was long before I ever did this professionally. And uh, that author had a baby, and I had totally forgotten until Claire reminded me that I coordinated a collaborative baby blanket for her and reached out to Claire at that point. I honestly don't know when the first time we met each other in person. I think that I (laughs) accidentally mistaked a completely different woman, like totally different age, look, just so wrong at a at a show at one point um and didn't realize that until much later so yeah that's embarrassing um but I ended up really recently at a an event put on by a local yarn store in Austin a kind of a big event I ended up at a dinner um and I had the opportunity to sit next to her and I have to say I you know I had been a bit intimidated by her, probably just her general mysterious persona, her wealth of knowledge. You know, I I sort of consider her to be super scholarly and I'm kind of more of a jazz hander and, you know, just all of those silly things that we preconceived notions we have as women. And I just, you know, we sat next to each other for the duration of this evening and I just found her to be so down to earth and sarcastic and absolutely, you know, my kind of gal. Um, So it was my pleasure to spend that time with her, and it is my pleasure to have her as a guest today. Clara Parks, thank you so much for being on Craftish. It's a pleasure talking to you, Um, especially after I got to see you and spend some time with you at a dinner the other night. So hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I um, read your book, Knitlandia, of course, and I wanted to I wanted to start kind of in the middle, not in the middle of the book, but in sort of maybe in the middle of a, the journey you've been on um, creatively. You say at some point that you moved to Maine because you wanted to live a more creative life, correct? Yes. What, what does that mean to you? What did that look like to you at the time? You know, at the time, it was... Um it was the beginning of kind of the the first rise right before the first tech bubble. And I, not through personal talent, I assure you, I was rising up in the kind of high tech journalism side of things. And I was writing about just these fortunes and this vast empires that were being built around the completely virtual, um, that, that, that just like I was absorbed in a world that had no real physical product and fortunes were being mm. made and broken and it just didn't feel real to me. 
And all around me, people in San Francisco, they were like, yeah, this great new startup called Yahoo. And like, you know, yeah, I got my money and I'm going to buy my city. Use that million dollars to buy a, you know, studio condo. And not to say I actually had any of that. I didn't share in the wealth. I just reported on it. But I remember this moment of thinking like, this is a really um, seductive and misleading world and my priorities don't match it. And, and I want to be, I need to be doing something that has more physicality to it, you know, and I could sit with yarn and needles and create a hat. And it was just so much more rewarding to me than, you know, sitting up in a high up office with the, um, the CEO of Oracle, you know, discussing database technology, like to me, a hat was much more interesting. Shh, don't tell him. No. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I mean, not to use a bad pun, but the but what came to me, well, probably because bad puns always come to me, but um, was moral fiber. Like, you huh. were, well, I mean, but I'm <laughs> yeah. not making, but I'm not making a joke. It seems to me mm-hmm. that it, you know, my question was, what did that look, t- you know, how did that look to you creatively? But really, that seemed like a sort of a moral precipice for you. Yeah, it it was. It was just. Like if I, the joke was always, if I had a million dollars, I, I would put it in a no load mutual fund, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and move to a tiny place in Maine where I could be free to do whatever my heart desired, uh, independently of that, that engine that just wants to lure you in and keep you, um, just running as fast as you can to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Why Maine? What about Maine felt like the polar opposite to you? Uh, well, my my family. I'm a I'm a seventh generation summer person, which still makes me a goddamn Yahoo, according uh-huh. to the Mainers. But yeah, my family has had land on the coast of Maine for uh, over a hundred years, and it's just it's beautiful. And I've I've been going there since I was a teeny tiny baby. I mean, my parents' honeymoon was there. Yeah, and um. For me, it's it's the place where I feel closest to whatever spirit you feel like is associated with how you came to this earth. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's where I feel the most grounded and creatively inspired. And it's where um, almost every really strong idea that I've followed up on that has served me well has come from. How did that translate for you, you know, back when you moved? I mean, because you were kind of running away from what everyone at that time was running towards. So when you when you got to that point, when you got to that sort of like spiritual grounding, how did it um how did it evolve it evolve to becoming who you are now, both sort of creatively and professionally? It it wasn't an immediate um evolution we we decided to like moving from san francisco to a town of 910 is probably not the best idea <laughs> so wow. even we realized that so we started in portland um you yeah. know and and the irony everybody thought we were crazy and the irony was that portland at that time had a more sophisticated high-speed internet infrastructure than san francisco did because they were the last to get it really so um when I first moved, when I first got there, I was still doing freelance in the tech world just to continue. I mean, you know, you have to, you need, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Sure. Um, 
but within probably it was two years two years to the month that we moved there was uh when the spark for knitters review arrived uh, it was may 2000 and october of that month i launched it so it was a very quick <laughs> leap i guess you could say and you you launched it as um I think in your words, you wanted Knitters Review to be the eyes and ears and fingers for knitters. And that was during a time when, um, you know, really knitting just saw like the this huge insurgence. It was shortly after 9-11, which I, I, I really felt the weight of um, influencing sort of that um, kind of fury that passion to run towards things that could be tangible and felt and comforting mm -hmm. um what is it about what what was the need that you felt that you thought that you could fill at that time given where we were both in the industry and sort of the overall sort of ethos um creatively well we were just beginning to see the rise in online yarn stores and um, that's kind of like, uh, imagine you lived in a country with one candy store. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and suddenly an entire world, not just in this country, but other countries was opening up and their yarn was available. And, and the descriptions were always, you know, this lovely, luscious, beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, but what I, does that mean? Right. And yeah, so I, I was it. ordering boxes and boxes of yarn as one does. And what I received didn't at all match what I had thought I was going to be getting. <laughs> that still happens to me. I, yeah. <laughs> and I just, I realized that um, there, there was no information out there. You know, I, I remember I used to look at the um, knitting magazines as kind of my Bible for if this yarn is in this magazine, it must be the most interesting and noteworthy yarn out there. Uh, which I've since learned is kind but it's of subjective, is, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there was no place where I could find out more information about why things were working the way that they did. And for me, I've always been, it's always been about the yarn. It hasn't been about the design or the garment, but the yarn itself just really, really intrigues me. Yeah. So with an art history background, you know, studying a work and really, really trying to get to its core and then a professional history of managing product reviews for a tech magazine and then managing a comparison shopping website and writing email newsletters every week to try and build community like all of those professional aspects of my experience suddenly had um, an application that I was I still am passionate about so it was it was like that beautiful lightning moment when you've been trudging in the dark and you don't understand, you know, just keep going. Something will work its way out. Yeah. And suddenly the lights are turned on and you're, you're like, oh, it fits. So that's, you know, what's funny. Yeah. I've been, um, so one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this podcast was just to sort of, I'm so fascinated by the stories of people that make their living creatively or, or even just live creatively at all, because they're so different. You know, there's not a, there's not necessarily a track for um, whatever this sort of overall community is. And what I've found is, is, on more than one occasion, um, 
what you just said is the experience of many who have found their living in this strange, strange world, whether it be knitting or, or photography or whatever it is, is that you have a really sort of eclectic resume. Um, and it, it's not until you sort of get into that groove, followed your passion, whatever it is that you that you go, oh, maybe there was a master plan. Maybe like Kara Got Warner from Creative Knitting was talking about how she, you know, there were these, there were all these like stepping stones that she didn't really even realize were leading to the same place that, you know, right. she was teaching fitness, but she learned how to, you know, be creative by teaching it differently every day so that people would be interesting. And now that really applies to our job today. And I know for myself, you know, I go back to even when I was in college or high school waiting tables, how I learned to relate to people that it directly changed the amount of tips that I was getting. Like if I made that eye connection or if I put my hand on their shoulder, um, you know, it really sort of changed the connection. And I still use that today in my life when I'm trying to, you know, excite people about being creative. And I love, I don't think, I don't believe that in other areas of professional expertise that that sort of is a common topic in that way. No, I don't, I don't, I think you're right. And I think that that would be my message to people who are still frustrated or thwarted, or they still feel there's something in them that is not being expressed that like, have faith, you're still gathering the marbles. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> you're going to you're one day you're going to encounter the board where they all fit and suddenly it's going to make sense. You're just you're accruing experience. If you Definitely. are actually following that gut instinct that it sounded like you had when you left Silicon Valley you know, to go where your passion is and stay true to yourself. Yeah, well, and, and my, I guess I have to, it really was a gut instinct in that I was, I was getting sick. I was having migraines. I was mm -hmm. having stomach aches. It's like my body just said, no, it, it, clearly you're not able to make this decision. So I'm going to, I'm just going to start breaking down for you. Yeah, isn't that funny how that works? Yeah. You mentioned um, that the yarn itself was really sort of more creatively stimulating than design. Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's that's not something that I hear often. And you've mm -hmm. created this wonderful sort of niche for yourself. What is it about like the actual fiber specifically that creatively fulfills you? Oh, I just love the infinite variety and nuance. I, I wish that I loved wine because I think the parallels are, are really, really strong. That depending on the sheep breed and even among the exact same sheep breed, depending on the altitude and the mineral contents and the, the climate, that every single skein that you work with has the capacity to be subtly nuanced and deliver a different creative experience. It's going to make a different sound as the fibers glide through your fingers. It's going to grab your needles differently if they're bamboo needles versus metal needles. It's um, going to change how you experience it. You, you want some yarns, you're going to want blunt tips. Some yarns, you're going to want pointy tips. Some techniques are going to lend themselves more to one yarn versus another. And just that infinite possibility uh, and opportunity for nuance and for, for tactile nuance to me that's so fascinating i was just like an hour ago speaking with the editor of a uk magazine called knitting and she 
used to work. I asked if she had, she'd just been there since November. And I asked if she'd been in the knitting industry before. And she said she was a, you know, lifelong knitter, but no, she'd actually worked in the alcohol industry. And she found that there was a very similar way that yarn and knitting was discussed as was wine. So it's fascinating Mm -hmm. that you said that. And we, we, you know, we got into the same conversation and, and for, for us or for me, I kind of liken it to the, I feel like we're at this point because of all, maybe some of the stuff that you were running from um, in San Francisco, the sort of this like flood of information and, um, and, and just this like overwhelming like stimuli coming at us at all times, sort of searching out those notes and wine or those like artisanal sort of like ways of of spinning or dyeing or whatever feel very the same. Those finding the diamond in this sort of like techie, you know, rush, I think maybe is 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 the similarities that we're seeing. Oh, definitely. And just just having that as a quest or having that as a lens through which you're viewing the world, it, it makes it so much more interesting, I think. You talk about swatching. Um, I think you, you teach courses on it um, <laughs> and you've spoken publicly about it, which I find fascinating when we were talking about this at dinner. Um, a lot of people have sort of an adverse and sometimes I'm like that as well, a reaction to swatching because it seems, you know, you're just like, I would just want to get to my project already. And you have such an interesting, I've actually been thinking a lot about it since we spoke, um, an interesting view on swatching. Will you speak a little to that? Oh, absolutely. So, so traditionally the concept of swatching is, it's that little square that you cast on because the blankety blank pattern says take time to save time swatch to check gauge and so you cast on a certain number of stitches on the needles that the pattern calls for and you knit as few as you can and you you know maybe you bind off and you kind of spread it out on your leg and you mush it together and you hopefully get the right numbers and then you unravel the whole thing and phew I'm done and you can start knitting (laughs) it's like you're in my head right now (laughs) (laughs) so for me because of what I've done with Knitter's Review I swatch for the experience of taking that yarn for a test drive. Mm -hmm. It's not at all about a finished garment. It's not a means to an end. It is um, taking it for a walk. It's a doodle. It has no point whatsoever except for the experience of working with that particular yarn and just going really, really deep into it, into the twist, into the ply, into the fibers, the bounciness, the drape, the squishiness, the smell. You know, is there stuff that comes out of the yarn? Where did it come from? How does the light reflect off of it? And and just like with doodling, you know how you probably have that pad of paper next to the phone that has the certain patterns of doodles that you do. Um, And I have that with swatching. You know, you start with stockinette and then you go into garter and then I go into ribbing and then I go into seed and then feather and fan and and there's no destination. It's it's a meditation in itself. And then when you're done, you bind off and you've just learned something. And in that regard, a swatch, I I think everybody needs to dedicate a certain percentage of their yarn budget to research and development, to Mm. R&D. And consider the cost of that swatch like a book or a class that you're going to come away with a deeper experience of that yarn. And, And it's something that your fingers are going to learn and remember. Not necessarily cerebrally, but it's an experience so that the next time 
you pick up a skein of yarn that shares characteristics with one that you've already swatched, images without any thought on your part, they're going to start popping into your head yeah. of what, what worked, what felt right. So for me, that's, that's what swatching is. It's totally separate from getting a number to create a project. It reminds me um, of the book from, you know, it's been around for probably decades, Artist's Way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, but her whole um, gig, and I'm forgetting the author at this moment, but is that you should write every day. It doesn't matter what you write. You should just write or you should just, you know, create. And it, it, seems, it seems to feel like you approach swatching in that same way that it's very artistic for you. It's a very like it's of the artist's mind. It is. It's it's like Pablo Casals. Every morning he would take a walk and then he would play a certain Bach fugue, prelude and fugue on his cello. No, it was on the piano every day. And it set his mind in the right place. Or you think of like Julia Child when she was studying French cooking at the Cordon Bleu. She had to chop how many onions? You know, she was swatching the onions. Mm -hmm. It's um, Or it's like just taking a daily swim, you're swimming laps. You're not trying to get anywhere. It's about kind of creating a daily practice that you, you sit yourself down in it, you settle yourself into it, and it trains your brain like this is the time when you can go somewhere. I think just even as Americans, we need to be trained to give ourselves permission. That's so antithetical to how, how our society sort of raises us to not have a destination. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah. It's just like you're in school. What are you majoring in? What are you studying? What kind yeah. of job are you going to get with that? <laughs> what are you doing you next? What are you doing next? What are you doing next? You're promoting yeah. a project. Well, what's next? Yeah. Oh, and the looks that I get when I am knitting a swatch in public and people are like, oh, what's your, what's your lumen there? You know. <laughs> and when I tell them I'm knitting a square that has no purpose whatsoever and when I'm done, I might unravel it or I'll bind it off and, you know, like yeah. I, they slowly back away. Um, I think there's there's something to it. It's we need to value um, the, value the journey and not just the destination. You started um, your working life as a travel writer, and you just wrote a book that was on the road and essentially is travel writing, but for knitting Knitlandia. Was that purposeful? Was that a full circle moment for you? It was, it was. Um, I gotta say, travel writing is my my catnip of of reading. Just Paul Theroux or Jan Morris or even Bill Bryson. Just that that is my absolute favorite way to escape in a book, to be somewhere and to experience it without having to leave home. And um, so when I started working on this idea, and and it it grew from. It wasn't just jamming my experience into a niche. Like the Knitter's Review calendar of events has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And every week we get more events and more gatherings. And knitters, uh, we've always been passionate and curious, but we have more opportunities than ever to travel and to see the world. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a privilege to have an opportunity to write about all the places that I've gotten to go to and not just from a self-indulgent like hey guys look at me this is me in front of the avatar <laughs> was that your Becky voice you just did <laughs> yeah <totally laughs> was. 
Um, you know, <laughs> look at this cute hat. This is my suitcase. Isn't it great? It, it, that that wasn't what it was about. It, it's yeah. like trying to document important moments, like the event called the Sock Summit, and there were two of them, and they really kicked off. They they made the other big players in the industry wake up and take notice. And from that, we have Vogue Knitting Live, Interweave Knitting Lab, which is now uh, uh, Yarnfest. Uh, Yarnfest. Yes, Yarn, right? Yarnfest. Yeah. Um, and in just a few years, I felt like that event, people aren't going to remember. So it's not only travel, but it's also kind of celebrating and documenting and honoring our collective culture and our collective history and our rites and rituals for, for future generations. These stories or these essays that you write take place over... I think it's over a decade, maybe maybe a bit more. Are you journaling this whole time, or are these all in your head? I uh, write all the time. Okay. So, yeah, it's just, that's kind of what I do. Okay. Yeah, so so it was it was through the travel notebooks that I kept, and then also, in some cases, just photographs. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and you'd look back at a picture and remember, oh, that's what it smelled like. Right. Or, yeah. Are your swatches part of those journals? Totally. Yeah. Totally. So when you're trying to sort of like give this visceral experience, are you, I mean, are you smelling the swatch? Are you feeling it? Are you looking, I mean, is, is that part of your writing process at all? In a way it is. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I just, I just came back, well, from Texas where we got to have dinner together and um, I brought a whole suitcase of swatches and they're not labeled at all. And so in the class, somebody said, like, do you, could you actually tell us about each one? So I started to pull out, well, this one is this yarn and I made it then. And this one is this one. And this is the story behind it. And, and it really, it is true that you can leaf through a pile of swatches and it is just like a sketchbook or a journal. Mm -hmm. And my joke is that once I can't remember these things, that's when I know it's time to check into a home. <laughs> Well, what I really love about that is that sort of like brings um, the heirloom factor back into life, the importance of it rather, you know, that quilts used to be like made to tell stories um, mm -hmm. and passed along. And it sounds like you're sort of encouraging that even through swatching. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing about swatching that's nice, I find, is um, when I when I'm feeling a little uh, thwarted isn't the right word, clogged isn't the right word, but it, you know, when you're just sort of creatively in a lull, mm -hmm. nothing stimulates the imagination like pulling out a big box filled with all sorts of stitches and textures and just flipping through them and just flipping through and inevitably some stitch pattern, some texture, some color calls to me and pulls my mind in a certain direction. Are your swatches, um, how are they stored? They're kind of everywhere in the house. I'd like to say, well, I keep them in a, a, several boxes where they're all labeled and okay. uh, no. I actually feel much better about that because I was about to open my like drawer of shame where they're all like <laughs> stuffed. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I have them everywhere. I even yeah. have um, several of them. Swatches, especially if it's a nice thick wool, I find you can roll them up and line them up along a windowsill where there might be draft. And they're a perfect draft blocker. So my whole house is full of wool in, in one form or another. Swatches, definitely. Do you find that um, writing 
versus knitting fulfill the same or different creative spaces for you? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think they fill slightly different creative spaces for me. Um, writing is more expressive release for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I find knitting is more physical, energetic release. Um, sometimes uh, knitting comes to me uh, very often when I'm so broken down in other ways that I just, I, I, I don't have the words anymore. I just need to move through it. And that's where knitting is really, really helpful for me. When you were traveling, well, not for this book, but just traveling for life and for work, um, which culminated for Knitlandia, of all the cities and states and countries that you visited, sort of in the name of knitting, which, if you had to pick, were the most inspiring? Um, the most inspiring, there's, there are kind of bookends to this. On the, the one end of the bookshelf would be going to Taos that first time. Yeah. Walking into Lalana Wool's, seeing all those colors and textures, and for the first time, really, really getting a hit of what this world could be. And, and being with this person who's so knowledgeable and such a legend, um, that, that was a really profound inspiration that, that kind of kicked me off. And then on the other side, I would have to say the Edinburgh Yarn Festival last year. And it's mm. just about to happen this year. Are you going and again? No, no. You know, I don't want to press my luck. <laughs> I had <laughs> such a good time. But it, it was, um, that was a trip that I didn't even, I wasn't sure I was going to do it until the very last minute. And I didn't really know anybody there. And I just, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to fly to Edinburgh You when you're comfortable, comfortable in your little house and you need to shake yourself out of your comfort zone. And so it was a total last minute, very short trip that just shook everything up and was so inspiring and, and so inspiring in terms of the community that's there and, and a reminder of how, how connected this community is across oceans that mm -hmm. you can travel to a place where you know nobody and feel right at home. What does the knitting culture look like in Scotland versus the U.S.? I I think they are they're experiencing that that uh, uh, there's no way to say this. And I don't mean it to sound condescending because it's more than this. But that first blush that we had a few years ago, that excitement and enthusiasm of, you mean we have fibers in our own country? Like, how can we get them so that they're not just sold off to other countries for carpet? Oh, mm -hmm. I can dye yarn myself and then I can sell it? Wow, it's just that that level of excitement and that just the first blush, they're still in it, but in a country with a much, much deeper and richer wool history and wool culture. Right, which is why I think that the assumption is made that... It would be like Iceland where there's going to be yarn in every at every gas station and every, you know, you know, um, grocery store. But it's, it's actually kind of difficult to get a variety of wool in sort of that whole geographical area. 
It is. It is. There. It's starting to change, and that was where the Edinburgh Yarn Festival was so inspiring. Was in the marketplace, you actually could find breed-specific yarns that were actually manufactured in the UK. Yeah. But in a in a general, the general case of things is still very much not there yet. They're still in transition. Part of what you do when you're traveling um, is teach. And I wanted to read um, a short paragraph from your book about education and then, and then talk a bit about it. You say, um, you're talking about a, in this pr- particular chapter, you're talking about Vogue, um, Vogue Knitting, the one that was in LA, but you're talking, I think, just in general about these conventions that we go to. These events are the closest we have to our own university, to tenured professors in a formal, formal curriculum. Because we lack sufficient financial clout to establish a permanent place for such learning, we have this traveling circus of experts who roam from town to town, event to event, squeaky-wheeled suitcases of samples in tow. Instead of vacuum cleaners or encyclopedias, we sell knowledge and skill acquired from decades of experience." Speak a little to that resonates so much to me because I, I truly believe that there still isn't the value placed on fiber arts that there are in other creative industries. And, and, and that just sort of puts an exclamation point at the importance of traveling either virtually or physically to teach. What do you think? Do you see that changing? Do you see the value changing in education within our industry? Does that even matter to you if it changes? Are you just happy to be one of the voices for it? I I just so still wish that we had a, a deeper permanent place where you could go for education. You know, that um, what I'm kind of grappling with is the challenge is that this this infrastructure it means that our greatest treasures have to fill up their suitcases with their samples squeaky 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 mm-hmm. and and hit the road every week every two weeks every month and um it's so vital and and yet it, the challenge how do i describe this the challenge is that it's it's one of the few career paths that there is in the knitting world. And so I see brand new people who are just learning. They're really amazing designers and they're inspiring and, and like that's the path. So they become teachers. Yeah. And then you have somebody who's been doing this forever who's in their 70s who has just, you know, multiple PhDs worth of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And they too are forced to, you know, check their suitcase and carry their carry-on bag and hope it doesn't get lost and check into the hotel room and which ballroom and I, you know, I'm in the Monte Cristo. Here are my handouts. And, and no, just, there's not a budget for an AV system. So everyone, all of your students will sit on your lap so they can see. Yeah. And yeah. oh, you're only teaching one class today. So I'm sorry, knitting legend, you're going to have to pay for your own hotel room tonight. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a life in any other field that I've worked in or people I know who work in, there isn't this odd setup. And I don't know if it's because it's historically over the last 150 years or so, a, a domestic pursuit. Women's work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that the online education platform is changing that at all? 
And I don't mean just the physical, you know, there's no squeaky squeak. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I mean, obviously, you can reach more masses. Um, Your voice has sort of a louder ring when you can have, you know, a craftsy class that has, I don't know, I think I taught like 10,000 people how to crochet or something like, I mean, a crazy amount of people that if I was on the road every day of my life, I wouldn't be able to fulfill. Do you think that overall that that will change the way the the level of value change the way once more people are exposed to it, their eyes will be more open. I I hope, you know I that was I'll say part of the motivation for doing my craftsy class was a, a similar probably that that I could do one really 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 good job of this class that I've been traveling you know for years and teaching and I can reach so many more people. And and I could actually be home with my cat, who's now 17 years old, yeah. and he would really like for me to be home. Um, where I I, I I would like to hope that that does the trick. Where, where I worry is that education has always been an integral part of the local yarn store. And so I worry that if, if it becomes so easy to learn whenever you want and whatever subject you want that that there will be a a diminished draw to local yarn stores and when you lose that physical resource there is no place for you to go when physical community yeah Yeah. physical community and 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 it just becomes more just like walking down the street watching somebody um instagram something for a, a community of complete strangers and they don't even make eye contact with mm-hmm. you it's it's you know it's it's an extension of that we are more connected and more lonely at the same time and yarn stores are a place where you are you are with the person in the here and now it's not yeah. virtual i truly believe that the two can go hand in hand and that people that do have a voice sort of owe it um, to the yarn stores to make that work in a way. I mean, if you if you have a voice on an online platform, you know, embrace that you're now speaking to somebody in Melbourne that you wouldn't be able to, but at the same time, give a shout out to say, don't forget to check out your local store. Like, remember, if I'm yeah. not here, you've got people who who would love to answer your questions. You've got, That's- you know, community and we owe that to them, and that's a larger voice. Like we couldn't, we couldn't mm-hmm. scream that as loud to the people that are already there in the shop. You know, mm-hmm. no, very, very true, very true. You give a lot of yourself at your retreats. Um, at some, a lot, a lot. Um, people will have to read the chapter about Iceland to really know how much you give. At what point? Um, well. What are you hoping that your students walk away with? Let's start there from your courses or from your the retreats, or the Clara Parks experience, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> when they're spending more than time, maybe more than just that hour with you or whatever. But, you know, people spend a good amount of money to come see you and spend time with you throughout a weekend, say. What are you hoping that that experience provides for them? I'm just hoping they they come away um, feeling inspired and kind of really gotten as a human being and a part of a group that's larger than, than themselves. So inspired and connected and, and strengthened to go back out into the world with a little extra sparkle in their soul. 
That's what I hope for. I like that spark on the soul. What do you and what do you get from them from that experience? I get the exact same thing. I mean, I remember faces and stories and expressions, and it comes back to me when I'm writing something or when I'm, you know, everybody has those dark hours of the soul. You wonder, what am I doing? I'm unemployable now, so I have to make this work. I I hear you, sister. (laughs) Yeah, I remember these faces, and I, like, that is, I I owe them a a responsibility to, to keep going because there are people out there who um, who do take it seriously and who do appreciate it. And may I always be worthy of that. That's really what it is. Don't rest on your laurels, mm-hmm. I guess. We both worked on the same television show, but at different times, Knitting Daily. I was wondering, just from an, you know, from an insider's perspective, what that experience was like for you, um, you know, you just spoke about what you got, what you get, the, the inner sparkle that you get from, you know, these f- sort of like personal relationships that you have, you know, phys- in the same physical space. What is it like for you or what was it like for you to try and share that sparkle to an anonymous audience on a public television network where you can't? mention brand names and you can't really make eye contact is it it, is it a challenge does it feel different does it still feel like it's the same message just delivered in a different way same message delivered in a different way definitely it was a Mm -hmm. huge challenge i mean once i discovered that i could only talk about the yarns that were placed there but i could not mention them by name um which actually saved me because otherwise I totally would have felt like, you know, I was hawking goods on QVC and that, that nobody intended that. Yeah. Um, I, I did, if I hadn't been such good friends with Uni, it would have been harder not to be able to talk to the camera <laughs> because you know, that's another thing where you're, you're aimed at a camera, but you can only look at this person who only they are allowed to look at the, look at the audience. Yeah. And that was, uh, and I know you, but you got to look at the camera, so you don't know what it's I like. I don't know your pain. <laughs> I have been a guest on shows too, though. Yeah, I get neener, it. neener, neener. Um, no. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think that the, I think that the reason that that decision might have been made was because a lot of people aren't comfortable with that fourth wall thing, the talking mm-hmm. to the camera thing. But for me, I treat the camera as the eyes of the viewer, so I totally get how that would feel less than authentic from your perspective mm-hmm. yeah I, I really had to see it like i am i'm having a conversation with uni and i really am having a conversation with her um that was the only way but i i do understand having watched other shows and watched what happens when the guest looks at the camera and there's a divided attention that can be distracting so i i respect why it had to happen it was just as a performer and as somebody who kind of needs to feel the nod of the eye mm-hmm. back at them, it, it was a challenge. Well, and the argument could be made that you were, not the argument, you were a co-host, so that that would give you license in a way that w- that a guest wouldn't have um, to work. I, I think that, you know, in a big way, that was just sort of a creative decision made by whomever was directing at the time, maybe, or mm-hmm. producing. Um, what The challenge that I found with not being able to mention um Label well one because a company I was working with was a big sponsor, so that was a bit of a point of a con- 
contention. Mm-hmm. But for me, what was really frustrating was it's really important to me to make, um, you know, to make knitting and crochet accessible to people. And so that they can then find success, because if people find success in something, they're coming back. And that's good for everyone in the industry that then keeps those local shops alive, or even, you know, it just keeps it in the zeitgeist. And so I've found that when people, especially if they're learning something new, they don't feel the, um, they might feel a little bit nervous about just sort of like riffing on materials, you know, they want to know exactly what you're working with, and exactly how you did it. And, and then hopefully, eventually, they'll feel, feel that creative freedom. And so I felt a little bit like we were doing a disservice. And that was where I felt, gosh, I just felt a little lesser than like, a, like I was letting people down in that way, because I couldn't give them all of the informational tools that they needed to thrive. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. That is a really good point that when you are at the beginning, you don't like, you know, get a good worsted weight wool or, you know, like, well, what does that mean? Like, yeah. y- you don't know yet. And you're right. Yeah. Good point. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> well, Clara, it's been really nice chatting with you. I'm so glad it took maybe 15 years for us to actually sit down and get to chat other than this. And <laughs> I, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I really, um, I feel like I have a different perspective on looking at yarn and knitting. And that's that's not something that you see a lot when you've been doing our job for this long. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for being on Craftish. Oh, Vicki, it is a pleasure to walk this path with you. And I really mean it. Thank you. Thank you, friend. All right. Take care. Claire Parks writes about yarn and knitting on her pioneering online magazine, Knitter's Review. For more info, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Thanks again to our sponsor, Pom Pom Quarterly, an absolutely gorgeous magazine for the Stitcherly types. Still listening? Doug, what you heard from Clara Parks and Craftish today? Well, then, my craft-loving friends, don't forget to head over to iTunes to rate and review us so that more listeners like yourselves can find us. And if you know someone specifically who would love this episode, then please share it with them. Or else just give out a general shout-out to us on social media with the hashtag craftish. And when I say shout-out, I mean only if it's relatively nice. If it's unkind, then hashtag hush. Kidding. Not kidding. And if you're interested in any of my other projects, please check out my website, vickihowell.com, and follow at vickihowell on social media. Beginning next Tuesday, we'll be putting up a new episode every week for at least the next six weeks. And then depending on um, how the ratings and reviews go, we might go bi-monthly or maybe we'll stay weekly. We shall see. Tune in to episode four, though, with my guest, executive editor of Creative Knitting, Kara Gottwarner. That'll go live on Tuesday, April 12th. Until next time. Don't forget to make time to breathe in, craft out.